0: In the spring of 2017, we set out with a bunch of borrowed equipment into the Alabama Black Belt region to interview the foot soldiers of the Civil Rights Movement. Going in, I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't really understand the the depth of what had happened. Um, Like most people, I hadn't really been exposed to. I grew up around 40 miles from Selma, Alabama and my entire life I was taught that the Selma Montgomery march was just about voting rights, which is a very important subject in itself, but it was just the tip of the iceberg of everything going on. Our goal is to let the men and women who were there tell you the rest of the story. Things have been left out or forgotten, sometimes intentionally buried. To find the truth, we went to speak with those who were actually there, who witnessed these events with their own eyes and were a part of these events. The story eventually takes us to Selma and to Marion and Demopolis. But to understand all those places, first you have to understand Birmingham. We're going to start our first episode with the Children's Crusade, Birmingham, Alabama, in May of 1963.
1: My name is Janice Wesley Kelsey. In 1963, I was a participant in the Children's Crusade in Birmingham, Alabama. I remember um, I began my participation on May 2nd. 1963. It was a Thursday morning and I woke up with my mind on freedom. I had attended uh, previous mass meetings uh, where I met James Bevel, one of the ministers, and James Bevel pointed out some of the inequities in our education. He talked about the copyright dates in our textbooks. Ours were outdated. He even talked about the football helmets. Uh, Our football helmets came in blue and white, but our school colors were green and gray. And he pointed out that we were getting discards from one of the white schools. Um, He talked about uh, eating lunch in downtown Birmingham, and how we could not sit down and eat a hot dog. We had to stand up in a corner, and yet we paid the same price as the people who were able to sit in the leather chairs. I think because of what he said, and those things were true, that it motivated me to want to do something about it, and that's why I participated. I left school on that Thursday and walked to 16th Street Baptist Church, went into the church, we sang freedom songs. Reverend Bevel and Andrew Young were in charge. They said some prayers, and we marched out of 16th Street Baptist Church singing, We Shall Overcome. We were stopped by police officers, who uh, one who stated that um, we were in violation of a city ordinance. We could not parade without a permit. And he said, If you get out of this line, nothing's going to happen. You stay in this line, you're going to jail. I stayed in the line, and I went to jail. Uh, no, Shuttlesworth had personally been involved with the uh, police when he tried to integrate Phillips High School with his children, um, and he was beaten. His wife was beaten. Uh, the home, his home, was bombed. Um, Fred Shuttlesworth was primarily the first leader uh, in the movement here in Birmingham. In fact, he invited Dr. King to come to Birmingham because it was perceived that Birmingham was the most segregated city in America, and um, Dr. King came and led in uh, our protests. Well, when I heard Dr. King speak, I knew it was very uplifting and motivating and challenging. But Dr. King at that point was not an icon, so I didn't think I was looking and listening to a movie star. He was a famous minister whom I respected, but I didn't hold him in a higher esteem than I did Fred Shuttlesworth or... Calvin Woods or John Porter or any of the other ministers. They were all just leaders whom I thought were very effective. The majority of the people came from church, yes. Because church was the only place we could legitimately gather in large numbers where black people were in charge so things did uh, originate in the churches and the ministers in those churches were were very influential. (laughs) Basically I thought they were hyped. It it was always a crowd. uh, The music was always really uh, upbeat. um, I liked being in the crowd. I liked uh, hearing the good singing. And the s- ministers who spoke uh, seemed to get a lot of reaction from the adults in the audience. So I felt like I was in the right place.
2: What's your most memory?
1: Uh While in jail, <laughs> at Fair Park Arena, which was a makeshift jail um and black people weren't allowed to go into that area when I was growing up so being in Fair Park, I thought that was a big thing when the buses pulled into Fairground, they had an amusement park in the beginning of the park. it was called Kittyland Park, and black people could not go unless you went after 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. So I'd never been, but I'd passed there many times. And so when the buses pulled into uh, Land Park, we cheered. Well, the buses didn't stop at the Ferris wheel or the carousel. They carried us to the back of the building and we were, I went into a building that was like a dormitory. And while sitting there on the floor one day, a news reporter came in and asked how do you feel about being in jail? And I remembered a uh, commercial that was on television, and the commercial was about carnation milk, and the commercial said, carnation cows are contented. And so when he asked young lady, how do you feel about being in jail? I told him I was as contented as a carnation cow. He took my picture, and I have a copy of that. It's been in many books that I've seen about the children's crusade. How
2: long did
1: Four days. I went in on Thursday and I was released to my parents on Sunday. How old were you? I was
2: sixteen.
1: Well, there were children as young as seven or eight, but most of the kids that I knew were teenagers. I went home after being discharged with my parents, and of course, my mother was very concerned that, A, I had gone to jail, and of course, I had not discussed with her my plan to do that, Um, and so most of my friends were already still in jail. I could not go back to school, so I was in the house (laughs) for the remainder of that week, and um, I didn't have anybody to really talk to about it, but m- by, by then I had another brother who had also been arrested, and there was a lot of concern in our family about what was happening to the kids in jail.
2: i and
1: Well, my experience, I don't really know what happened afterwards. I know when I was arrested, there were thousands of kids. Um, I read somewhere that on May 2nd, over 900 kids were jailed. And by the time the uh, marches ceased, about 3,000 kids had been arrested. I don't know how many adults. I do know that before the children's crusade, in fact, a full year before, students at Miles College had organized um, a selective buying campaign to uh, get the attention of the retailers downtown. But I'm not sure, you know, how many were arrested, we were told in our strategy sessions that we really didn't have anything to lose, but our parents did, because our parents couldn't lose their jobs if they demonstrated, and then there would be no one to take care of us. So I'm not sure how many adults participated after uh, the Children's Crusade ceased, because actually, when... When the children's crusade ended, the city officials were ready to come to the table and make some concessions. It was the retailers in downtown Birmingham who felt the brunt of what was going on. White people weren't coming downtown to shop because they were afraid of all of the black folk who were crowding the streets. The black folk weren't shopping because all the kids were marching and being arrested and being attacked by dogs and being sprayed with water hoses. And so nobody was shopping. Retailers were losing money big time. And so they forced city officials to come to the table and let's talk about some resolutions. And resolutions did take place. Um, I remember they took the signs off of the restrooms colored in white. They took the signs out the water fountains and they hired at least one black salesperson in the department stores. And so I thought when the children's crusade ended that we really had overcome. My active participation in movement uh, pretty much subsided after, uh, after the spring of the year. Uh, our president John F. Kennedy went on television talking about the deplorable way in which city officials had handled the children during the um, marches and he pushed for a legislative bill that ultimately passed in 1964 the Civil Rights Act Uh, I think the Children's Crusade was a stimulus for that So I felt really good about that. But prior to its passing, in the fall of 1963, I think it was September 15th, 16th Street Baptist Church was bombed. Four girls were killed in the bombing. One of them was a personal friend. Two others, I knew their families. And one other, I didn't know her family, but... She had a sister who was in the same class with my brother. Um, That was a very, very painful time uh, for me to think that someone would take such drastic measures to react to what had been done. I think even today, 55 years later, the thought of the sacrifice that was made to generate change is why I even speak about it today. Um, I think the Voters' Rights Act, uh, all of that started with the children taking the front line in Birmingham and uh, I think it was a catalyst for change all over America.
2: Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why, that's why I wrote a book. I want my grands and my great grands and their grands to know what it took. Because if you don't know your history, you're subject to repeating it. And if it's not written, if it's not recorded, then it may be twisted when it's reported. Okay,
2: I'm say that. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: How
2: did you personally get started in
1: movement? <laughs> okay. I had a girlfriend whose mother and sister were in the movement's choir. And my girlfriend would come to school, she went to the mass meetings with her family. And she would talk about it at school the next day. And what she said impressed me. She talked about the crowds. And I thought, okay, I like crowds. (laughs) She talked about the great music. Carlton Reese was on the organ. He was a well-known musician. And uh, I thought, I like good music. And she talked about um, all the cute boys that would be there. I like cute boys. So I thought, I need to go to one of those. That's why I went to my first mass meeting. Because, you know, really growing up in Birmingham, I grew up in a segregated society. I didn't really mm. encounter people of a different race. And so being separated didn't really bother me. Everybody that I knew and liked lived in my neighborhood, went to my school, went to my church. And I didn't feel any kind of way about my situation. In fact, I was in college taking sociology before I knew that my family was poor. Um, <laughs> when we studied salary, range, and job titles, and I realized my dad only made seven, we are poor. I didn't know it. I did, nothing, nothing in my environment made me feel that way. And I didn't encounter people of a different race in my community. Uh, there, were, there was a grocery store in the neighborhood that we would go to sometimes, but I'd just go and do whatever my parents had me to go to the store to get. And there was no interaction, and so I didn't feel like a second-class citizen. There were some things I didn't like. If I rode the bus, and there were seats available in the front of the bus, but the block of wood said colored. I had to stand up, even though seats were available on that bus. I didn't like that. But I didn't feel that I could do anything about it. It had always been that way. And I didn't I didn't think that there was anything I could do to change that. Those mass meetings showed me that I could. I'm glad I did. I knew Cynthia Wesley. We had the same last name. Cynthia had been um, adopted by Claude and Gertrude Wesley who were friends with my mother's sister. And uh, my mother's sister taught at the same school that Gertrude Wesley taught. And I spent the night sometimes with my mother's sister. So, She, when Cynthia was brought into their family, I was always invited to come to their house to a lawn party or if we went to the symphony orchestra with the school, she and I rode together. And that September, I was in the 11th grade and Cynthia was in the 9th grade. So people thought we were related because we had the same last name. And I treated her like she was my kid's sister. I had seven brothers, so to have a sister with my same last name, I acted like she was my sister, and I was just devastated when the news was brought that she was dead. In fact, people thought it was me. We got calls, our home phone rang and rang all day on September the 15th. They heard one of the Wesley girls had been killed, and it was two Wesley girls, me and my sister. My sister was teaching school, so it wasn't her, that, but they were saying one of those Wesley girls. And I kept hearing my mom say, answer the phone and say, no, it's, it's not our family. No, it's not our family. There weren't about three or four Wesleys listed in the telephone book. So white people and black people were calling, um, but it was later that evening when it was clarified exactly who that whisker girl was. Um, Denise McNair was the eleven, and her father, Chris McNair, used to be our milkman. They would bring milk and juice to the house. He worked for White Dairy Farms and um, Carol Robinson. Carol was 14, and her daddy, Alvin Robinson, taught band at my elementary school, so I knew him. And Eddie um, Collins, I didn't know her, but she had a sister who was in the same class with one of my brothers. And I just felt like the whole world was crashing to, to get that kind of news, um, to realize that someone was so upset or hated so deeply that they would bomb a church on a Sunday morning. I was familiar with bombings in Birmingham because I lived not too far from what was called Dynamite Hill. And we would use the term just so frequently, we're going to skate on Dynamite Hill because it was hilly and it had paved streets it was a great place to go during the Christmas holidays and skate. And everybody got skates at Christmas (laughs) when I was a kid. So saying Dynamite Hill didn't mean to me that somebody could be hurt because their homes were damaged. And my parents didn't talk about that in our presence. So I didn't really fully understand the magnitude of what was going on in Birmingham? All of that time, um, my interest was not in reading the Birmingham News. I would read Dear Abby or the comics, but but I wasn't reading whatever else was being reported. And now that I recognize what was being reported, it wasn't accurate. It wasn't. It was fake news. <laughs> so. I think, hurtful, they were hurt, um, but also so uncertain as to what was going to happen next. In my environment, it was a very protected environment. So whatever the adults thought or felt, I wasn't a part of that conversation. They would say, grown folk talking, that means the kids had to get out. We We couldn't listen to some of the feelings that they had. Um, I look back and I remember my dad would tell my brothers, you, you better be in this front yard when that street light comes on because I don't want the police to get you. Um, so I grew up fearing the police. I didn't know they were there to help us. And those that were patrolling our streets weren't there to help us.
0: Janice Kelsey's book, I Woke Up With My Mind on Freedom, is currently available on Amazon.com. We'll have more of her in upcoming episodes
2: as she talks more about life in Birmingham and life in the early movement.